0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net and Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com studiohfl and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the Subscribe to Newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music... P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview.
1: I just spent the last three years with Alan. Yeah, that's what he said. Finishing my DMA at CCM. And are you it's, done? I am finished. I finished last May, and like, I couldn't be happier. Like
0: you are Dr. Hawkins. Yes,
1: sir. Congratulations. Don't call me that. Only my mom calls me okay. that. Okay. <laughs> but,
0: but... Dr. Hawkins, right? Yeah. Yes. Doc. Well, well there's already one, and his signature yeah, right? is on your case. Right, And your signature is going to go on there uh, <laughs> before we're done here today. Um, yeah, man, you're right. Small world, um, and it gets smaller all the time. I'll, I'll interview somebody, and uh, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they they studied with or taught with somebody I studied with or taught, or, you know, we've played – and mm-hmm. we know, it's it's a it's a big trumpet world, but it's also, it's fun. I'll, I'll say that. Certainly. Uh, Andrew Hitz and Lance Leduc, the ones that, mm-hmm. right? So I emailed them, and I said, hey, I'm doing a podcast that He emailed back almost immediately. It's been great, because, you know, it's like, who needs another podcast in the world? There's like over 700,000 podcasts.
1: But this is what I spend the m- majority of my trips listening to.
0: Right, and you got to find some interesting stuff. I live here in
1: Lexington, and Lexington is home base because my wife has a a faculty position in the physiology department here at UK, uh, but I play in Knoxville Symphony, which is nearly three hours away, so I spend a vast majority of my time listening to all these podcasts. Yeah. So I'm always happy to find new ones that are different, but yet still something that I'm interested in.
0: And there's some really good stuff out there. Sure. And there's not good stuff. And I know
1: not everybody's going to like mine, and
0: that's fine. You know, I'll have my family. You know, I've bribed them into listening most of the (laughs) time. That's not true.
1: I don't think I can bribe my wife into listening to trumpet talk. No. Her specialty is noise-induced hearing loss research. So she wants nothing to do with the trumpet. (laughs) Wow. She understands it. She understands because of her job. She understands the time commitment. Yeah that we really have to put into it to take it seriously. And that part I'm very thankful about. Yeah, But that also leads to a lot of great conversations outside of what mouthpiece do you play, (laughs) which I'm always happy to talk about. Yeah, okay, so the funny (laughs) thing
0: is, uh, the three interviews I did earlier today, we didn't talk equipment at all. I mean, we finished... That's not
1: surprising with Alan Siebert. It's not really surprising with Matt Anklin... Although I know he really does promote Powell Trumpets very oh, yeah. well.
0: Yeah. And you by and just saying that, you promoted it more than he did. I mean we never got around it.
1: <laughs> never got around to that. Man, he, but the, that horn that he plays is just fantastic. Well, there's a lot of great equipment out there. I want one. I just can't afford to buy one right yeah, now.
0: Yeah. So you know what? Uh, I didn't do a formal introduction. Here I am. Today's podcast is featuring uh, trumpeter, uh, well, you said not to call you doctor, but I'm going to call you for the sake of this podcast, Dr. Chase Hawkins and uh, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you. <sighs> a round of applause on the back.
0: Um, yeah, so uh, I mean people already got a little bit of introduction to some things. Um, I think maybe the most interesting thing uh, that you said before we before I hit the record button was uh, you've got a seven month old at home. Yes, boy or girl, girl. What's her name?
1: Aria Isabella. And? Hawkins hyphen Vellis. And you're in love. I could not imagine it differently at this point. Isn't it cool? It is amazing. Yeah. And, I, you know, your your, your priorities change drastically when you have <laughs> kids and things that you thought were maybe once important in your career. You realize you don't have to have that to still have you know, a big success in your career because that all changes for you personally and what that means anyways, but it's also kept me home a little bit more Mm -hmm. because my wife works full time Mm -hmm. and I've been the one taking care of her most days. Um, And that's something I never, you know, it wasn't that I never saw that coming, but it's just not something that I gave a lot of thought to, Mm. but she's been pretty easy uh, so far she's very lively but she mm-hmm. also manages to keep herself entertained really well and
0: Does she uh, enjoy your practicing around the house? No. She
1: does not <laughs> like loud noise at yeah, all. Yeah. Um and I was the same way when I was a little kid. My my family um owned a construction business mm. and when they were home working on their equipment, the loud banging and welding and whatever they did in the shop I just killed my ears, so I wouldn't have any of mm-hmm. that either. Mm-hmm. So how are you working around that? Um, well, um, uh, speaking of Matt Anklin earlier that we were talking about had designed this oh, the, silencer. the silencer and I've always hated the idea of practice mutes. Right. Because of the back pressure that you practice against, you start to get used to that and then it's hard to play into the open horn. But that at least is the least amount of mm-hmm of internal resistance that I found from mm-hmm. from anything that I've played so far and it's loud enough still that I can hear the sound that I'm producing and the pitch is good enough that I can work my way around most things so mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. I could even stick it in my Tom Crown harm piccolo harm and mute and practice oh, okay. on that and it works pretty well mm-hmm. so and uh, that's the way I'm able to practice at the house, but I do the majority of my practicing after my wife gets home from work. Mm-hmm. Then I come over here to University of Kentucky and use the school's practice rooms whenever <laughs> it's quiet.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. So what kind of time you putting in? I mean, you've got responsibilities uh, with Knoxville Symphony, right? Sure. Um, anywhere else?
1: This past season I've been playing guest principal quite a lot with Louisville Orchestra, which was a major blessing because it allowed me to come home every single night and help mm-hmm. my wife out with the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I was very thankful for. I've also been playing quite a bit with West Virginia Symphony. Mm-hmm. That seems like it's picking up a little bit more.
0: Is that with Stephen Campbell? Are you up there with Stephen?
1: I have actually played in Stephen's absence uh, okay. almost okay. every okay. single time because he's in so many different right. Uh, right. different orchestras. But I, I really enjoy I enjoy playing all of them. Uh, but my position in Knoxville has a currently has a no minimum service requirement, which allows me to take those other opportunities mm-hmm. that are closer. And again, one of those things that you think is a big priority in your life at the time, my first couple of seasons in Knoxville Symphony, I was really fighting to find a way to make my position a full-time, Salaried position. Wait, it's not? It's not. No, they're, uh, most of the orchestra, I'm saying. Principal trumpet is not? Principal trumpet is not. They're, we have five full time string quartets and a full time woodwind quintet, and beyond that, it is per service.
0: I'm, it's a lot I'm of work. Blown away.
1: It is, uh, depending on the season, it is between a 37 and a 40 week um, commitment. Mm hmm. Um, so you are working paycheck to paycheck, so it's not guaranteed as mm-hmm. it's, as a salary, but it is certainly, mm-hmm. um, up there with most salaries for many, um, sure. uh, full-time regional orchestra, sure. but without the benefits, probably without the benefits. However, my wife's benefits here at university of Kentucky are fantastic and better than what the symphony offers. So sure. in my situation, it would be that way, That's even good. if the symphony offered it, Right. which they do, but I just don't take, I don't take part in them. Mm-hmm. The benefits there.
0: So how long you been with uh, uh, Knoxville? I
1: just finished my sixth season mm-hmm. and it is flying by rapidly. Mm-hmm. And did you replace Kathy? I did, yes. Yeah. I do see her every now and then.
0: Yeah. And uh, let's talk a little bit. What what got you to Knoxville? Were you at another orchestra prior to that? Were you in school? What led you to I was uh, in Knoxville? school
1: here at University of Kentucky. I started my doctorate degree here and I took the audition there. I believe it was my second second year of the DMA. Mm-hmm. Then I won that position. Then I, took a, then I did a one-year position here at UK while they were doing a search. And then I took a year off because uh, at that point, after playing the job in Knoxville and the teaching here, mm-hmm. I just needed a rest from sure. school.
0: <laughs> so you bridge the gap between who and Jason Devil?
1: Mark Claude Felter was here previously. Ah, okay, sure. And then, because I was a grad student at the time, um, I was still a grad student here at mm-hmm. UK when I took that that position. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to teach other graduate students because of that. So sure. Vince DiMartino came in and taught. Who? <laughs> if her body knows Vince, don't and give I me just that. Uh,
0: the previous three interviews. I mean, and his name comes up every <laughs> single time, and justly so.
1: I mean, Vince is. Uh, I mean, he's the heart of this area of Kentucky. Yeah, and one of the most amazing things to me. We we all know Vince and what he's capable of <laughs> on the trumpet. It's just phenomenal, and he's a fantastic teacher. But more surprisingly to me is how well connected he is with the outside music community. Everybody here in town knows who Vince <laughs> is and that is a hell of a legacy yeah. to leave behind yeah i you know doc severson a name that everybody still knows but they know him mostly through the tonight show sure um vince doesn't get that airtime on tv mm-hmm. so that's what's most interesting to me is how yeah. well he's made his name in this area, not just Lexington, but the greater area. Oh, sure, with Danville and the Brass Band Festival. Absolutely, and the Festival. Brass Band Festival, I'm yeah. sure, has yeah. a lot to do with that, which is an amazing gem in the middle of nowhere, Danville, <laughs> Kentucky, really. Mm-hmm. And I, and when when Vince retired from Center College, I taught at Center College for a few years also. Oh, terrific. And I while that. I was there, that is what convinced me that, ah, you know, Previously, before I started the DMA at UK, I didn't really have an interest in, in teaching at the university level. I, I was so geared towards orchestral playing, uh, nothing else sounded interesting to me. But, like a lot of people now, run into the situation, you finish a master's program and you're taking auditions and you're not having any success, what do you do? Well... I guess I'm going to go get a DMA. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the best way to think, but that's the option that I took. So after, you know, inquiring around places, um, Mark Clodfelter, I, I believe, it's hard to remember at this point, but I believe Mark contacted me and asked if I would be interested in the TA position here at University of Kentucky. Um I had had a TA position at at Eastman uh, with Jim Thompson, and so I kind of knew those responsibilities. Yeah, sure, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll look into it. I wasn't expecting to come to University of Kentucky, but I'd known Mark since I was about 10 years old. In fact, Mm -hmm. Mark gave me my first, he was the first trumpet player that that ever gave me a lesson. No kidding. I had studied with a, a tuba player at the time, who was an amazing tuba player his name's John Sizemore from he's from lives in Reedville South Carolina you won't really find it on a map <laughs> but um John was the principal tuba in Asheville Symphony which is where Mark currently plays principal trumpet uh-huh. and I used to go up and listen to every rehearsal uh-huh. just go to the concerts and Mark would give me like a 10 minute lesson in intermission uh-huh. to we had that connection early on, and I knew Vince was down here also. Uh, I knew Bob Sullivan was up in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, unfortunate situation but um, now, but I knew Mike Tunnel um, yeah. a little bit, who I got to know uh, much more closely after I moved to, to Lexington. And I know Reese Land, who was good friends with John Sizemore, mm-hmm. So there was a lot of people, a lot of great trumpet players around this area that really made that decision for me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Less, maybe less so the school and more so just who's around.
0: Man, that's really funny because in a previous interview today, it flipped, that conversation flipped, you know, somebody was talking about, yeah, I think, you know, it was more about the institution rather than who was teaching there. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny, you know, we all have varied experiences, of course. And
1: and, and that's exactly what we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not all attracted to the same things, mm-hmm. and we all do different things. Everybody's mm-hmm. priorities in life are mm-hmm.
0: different. Man, so you've already dropped, uh, you know, some great names. Uh, I mean, we're out of order chronologically, which is no big deal, but... Um, Okay, so Mark was your first teacher who actually played trumpet. Yes. How old were you, when? where Where were you at the point? I
1: was about 10 years old then.
0: Okay, so early on.
1: Yeah, right when I started. Okay, okay. From day one, I had an instant connection to the instrument. Um, not really sure. Well, I do know why, now that I'm really starting to think about it. My next-door neighbor was a trumpet player. Uh-huh. I... Cannot mention her name for the sake of just being on That's the podcast, okay. Okay. but, but it rhymes, she wasn't very it was, good. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> And now I understand why her parents used to make her practice outside yeah. on a picnic table, <laughs> which was outside of my bedroom window, and I could not take it. I knew then that it was not a good sound. So did you just take up trumpet to spite uh, her Actu- or, or I, to prove? That- I, I really think so. Oh, that's hilarious. I, I don't know if it was out of malice, but knowing <laughs> me at the time, it probably was. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, out of spite, I don't think so, because that summer that I started, we did go to the middle school and try out all of the instruments. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. The band director really wanted me to play the flute. He said out of all of the instruments, that was the one that I was most naturally. Were you able to able get a to sound on Yes. Oh my gosh. And that's that was the
0: most difficult woodwind instrument for me.
1: And it was definitely not something that I ever had an interest <laughs> in, but I already knew what the trumpet was. Mhm. Because maybe because of my next door neighbor, but I also remember seeing I remember seeing Winton on Sesame Street. I mean, you hear a trumpet sound like that, sure. And you quickly learn what a good sound is. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And the fact that you could be on TV with Sesame Street characters—I <laughs> mean, Oscar the Grouch—how awesome is that? That right? would be, that would have been it for me as a ten-year-old kid if I could just do that.
0: I don't know. It might still be a good, <laughs> it might still be a good goal to have. Sure. Why not? Right?
1: Why not? But um, so you—I you the- was playing baseball at the time. I played baseball for five years. And I hated it because my coach always stuck me in left field. Oh. And, you know, we're talking coaches pitch days and into rookie eights and right. so on. Very few kids could actually hit the ball that far. Sure. So I'd, I would be bored out of my mind, mm-hmm. chasing grasshoppers, butterflies, whatever. And occasionally a ball would come rolling by me and I would have no clue. <laughs> coach would be yelling at me. He'd whack mm-hmm. me over the head with his glove. So I very quickly learned not to like the game because of those experiences. But sure. all I want to do was hit. If that's all I could have done, maybe I would have <laughs> stuck with it. But I was never really good at anything that I did when I was little. Um, I wouldn't say that I wasn't athletic. I just had no interest in, hmm. in really playing sports. I did, but it was not – I didn't enjoy it as much as other kids did. Mm-hmm. Um. But when I I started the summer before started trumpet the summer before sixth grade in this program that John Sosmore started called Jumpstart Program, and he used uh, Jim Thompson's first book that he came out with, I believe it was called Daily Play Along Brass Builder Volume One for B flat trumpet, and it would state that very clearly on. Mm-hmm the cassette tape or CD, Mm -hmm. whichever one it came out first on. It was a yellow book. And there were four trumpet players that enrolled in this program. And it it was over a series of weeks. And each week at the end of the week, we would give a small concert to Mm -hmm. parents and friends um, of ours or people that John invited Mm -hmm. as an audience. So we learned early on to like, from day one to be playing in front of people, and all four of us were the best trumpet players all the way through high school, Mm -hmm. no doubt because of that program Mm -hmm. and the education that we got from day one. But uh, John said that I was one of the most natural buzzers for the lips, so Mm -hmm. in those concerts, he would have me buzz tunes (laughs) on my lips, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I believe as far as I can remember, he was maybe the first person that ever told me that I was good at something. Wow. And I totally ran with that. And from, I mean, even that summer, that first summer that we had together, I would go over and spend nights at his house with his wife and, and his two kids. Uh, his oldest son was a just monster trumpet player. Mm -hmm. And he put together this collection of, uh, first movement of Haydn, Hummel, and a bunch of excerpts when he was Mm -hmm. 17 or 18 that would pass its way into any final round of an orchestra today. (laughs) He no longer plays, doesn't play the trumpet anymore, but hearing him, too, practice, I would understand what a great sound is on Mm -hmm. the trumpet Mm -hmm. when I would go over to the house. And that summer, we would sit down and watch. I remember I'd only been playing the trumpet maybe two or three months, and Mm -hmm. John asked me to come to the house. We're going to watch... Opera. What ten-year-old kid has an interest in this? <laughs> but he told me it was in German, and at the time I was taking German in school. Oh, okay. So that was an interest of mine, and we watched the Ring Cycle in a day. Oh my gosh! So basically, seventeen and a half hours Holy of continuous cow. opera, and his wife would she was an opera singer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. She would cook dinner and lunch and whatever. Oh. While we're watching this, and it was the Met production DVD, or I guess it was probably VHS at that point, uh-huh. we watched the whole thing, and I remember being so captivated that it wasn't long after that I asked him if we could do it again. You're kidding! What ten year old kid does this? I
0: what What was it? Was it the production itself? Was it the music? Was it everything? It was, was it?
1: just everything. I I it's hard to separate it. Um, now, if I, I – I don't know, but I remember that being one of the first things that really made me understand that this is something that you can do for a profession. Because mm-hmm. I'm hearing singing. I'd heard opera singers before, but I'd never seen it in this particular uh, setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was just incredible. And I had already read the, the Tolkien – Lord of the Rings books. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story is so similar, and I recognized that then. So I would imagine that that probably is what kept my interest through it.
0: Was that your first significant musical experience?
1: As far as I can remember, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I—that's when I knew I really could do music for a career. Mm-hmm. That but, soon. but that season, that, that, soon that soon same after the se- orchestral season, we went to, John took me to an Atlanta symphony concert when Jim Thompson was still mm-hmm. playing principal there. And they did Pines of Rome. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking him walking off stage to play the solo. And I turned to my teacher. I was like, is he sick? <laughs> Where the hell is he going? Yeah, right. And then I hear this just, angelic sounds coming from backstage and that was the moment uh, when I knew that I wanted to play the trumpet simply because you could play off stage and people couldn't see you. That was it. So did you put
0: two and two together, Jim Thompson in the Atlanta Symphony and the book you were learning from?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah knew, he he knew that's who he, it was. He made that connection for me uh-huh. um, and his son, Chris had studied with Jim Thompson a little bit off and on. Mm -hmm. And we went up on stage after that concert and Jim entered or John introduced me to Jim. Oh, my gosh. Jim (laughs) asks me if I'm a trumpet player. Yes. (laughs) And then he handed me, he had just gotten uh, a new copy of his newest book. One of the buzzing books. Um, It wasn't called the buzzing. Oh, it's called Buzzing Basics. Mm Mm-hmm. And he gave me a copy and gave John a copy and said, do this. So I had, John had an extensive collection of CDs. Mm -hmm. And I, he basically burned them all and gave me copies of his entire library, which was, I don't know if I would have the patience to do that for my own students today. I mean, it's. It's really hard to love a student at that kind of level. I mean, I I felt like he was my own father. Wow. And he says that he felt like I was his son, too. And no no doubt, when I look back at it now, mm-hmm. that it certainly felt that way. I didn't see it at that time. I just thought he was a really great sure, teacher. Sure. But um, So how long did you study with him? I studied with him... Through high school,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all the way through high school.
0: And what's, is he still on the East Coast?
1: He is still teaching in yeah. Duncan, South Carolina. And to keep in touch? Absolutely. Every time I go down uh, to visit my family, now my family has moved from where they were when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, now they only live about five, six miles away from him. Mm-hmm. So anytime I go to visit, I try to, if I have a day, you have to have a day there. There's no pop in, <laughs> say hi, and go. Right. He has, if he's teaching students, he's going to make you sit down and mm-hmm. teach his students. And he made me do that when I was in high school too. He made me teach mm-hmm. some of the very young, very beginning students. And he would sit there and kind of instruct me mm-hmm. how to instruct the student.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a lot of incredible experiences that, if had I not had these, I never would have been a trumpet player. hmm I realized that more and more as as years passed Mm -hmm. by, but with Jim Thompson, it was a very a very close relationship that I didn't realize at the time. Uh, Not long after I heard him play in the orchestra, I played in a master class that Jim was giving at North used to be North Greenville College, now they're accredited as a university Mm -hmm. um, in Tigerville, South Carolina. I think it's called. Again, middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But Jim gave that master class. I can't remember what I played for him, but apparently it made some kind of impression. Mm-hmm. I was at that time I was maybe eleven years old. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd been playing the trumpet a year yet. Mm-hmm. Um but when I went for my fast forward several years, when I went for my audition at Eastman, he remembered. No meeting kidding. me on the stage he remembered <laughs> that ex- he remembered my master class there mm-hmm. and you know more so than my playing he re- i think he remembered my personality mm-hmm. and that is one thing that jim is really good about with that studio at eastman is not necessarily he doesn't necessarily take the best students at the auditions he takes ones that think that he thinks Either have somewhere to grow, or that they have an extreme work ethic that is going to get them somewhere mm-hmm. one day. Mm-hmm. And this is something I, I have talked with him a lot about mm-hmm. when a student would come in that I would recognize as not one of the you know not one of the best students in the studio. and mm-hmm. uh, we, we've had a couple conversations talking about why he decides to take these students, and it's not something that you really see happening like that at the big conservatories sure. too much. But he's not interested in the best students. He's interested in the ones that have something to give to the trumpet world. Wow. And and I feel like that made our, our uh, studio collaboration so much better, so much stronger than I see at some of the other schools I've been, some mm-hmm. of the other schools I've visited. Uh, and I'm very thankful for... For that experience were you there
0: for a bachelor's or a master's I did
1: my math I did my bachelor's there and then i I did one year of my master's at Manhattan School mm-hmm. with Vince Penzarella and I hated New York City oh no kidding. um that was one of the reasons why I was so scared to go to Juilliard my freshman year. I knew that New York City was not a place that I wanted to be mm-hmm. my town that I'm from has like three hundred people or something. Really small. New York City was that was not going to happen, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that connection that I had with Jim already just it, it couldn't happen in mm-hmm, in a, in a mm-hmm. better way for me. Mm-hmm. I probably if if I had gone to Juilliard, I I would have left at some point. Maybe I would have decided the trumpet wasn't for me, mm-hmm. and that wouldn't have been anything to do with the teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved Ray Mays is the one I would have studied with mm-hmm. there, and I knew Ray from North Carolina School of the Arts where I went one year in mm-hmm. high school, and it just it, the city wouldn't have been the right experience for me at the time. So mm-hmm. I tried it again later. Yeah, and it was not the right experience for me. Uh, yeah, of course I learned what <laughs> what it's like to really live in the city and get to hear any type of music that you want to sure. any night of the week. That was incredible and you know i'm not exactly the smallest guy out there man i love the food yeah any kind of food you want within yeah. a few blocks it's, that, <laughs> that sounds like a place that i should be mm. but uh so where'd you finish your master's i i then i transferred it back to Bay. yeah i did two more years there before i moved down to kentucky mm-hmm.
0: think about your uh the way that uh john sizemore right john
1: and i really wasn't expecting to talk about him so much but he okay. really has made well, a big of I mean, an impact in my absolutely
0: life. i mean th- that comes through clear as a bell on that and I, that's important i mean that's obviously developed uh who you are absolutely as a player and a teacher no no doubt um so uh, did you ever was it professor sizemore or just mr sizemore or
1: it was always mr sizemore yeah. It still is Mr. Sizemore. Yeah. <laughs> it will always be Mr. Sizemore. Sure.
0: Yeah. Uh so he and uh Jim, uh what are their teaching styles? I mean, and what's your learning style? Think about how they were they ones that modeled for you? Were they ones that you played along together a lot? Or uh what was that like? Are you an analytical kind of person? Do you want to know the nuts and bolts of things? What uh or did you just like go and were a sponge, just soak it all up?
1: Maybe a combination of all of them. I think that depends on the particular mood that I'm in. <laughs> it really, it really does change for me, mm-hmm. um, and my interests change quite a lot too. Um, this is a really that—that's a harder question to answer than it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I didn't mean to stump you
0: for that. No, I just...
1: actually, you want to ask that question again? I got, Were, I need did to they did they again.
0: model uh, playing for you? Yes. And I know Mr. Sizemore was a
1: trombone player. You said, but tuba player. Sorry, tuba player. Um, did he play a lot for you? He played every lesson. I never saw him. I observed a lot of his lessons too. I never saw him when his tuba was not out mm-hmm. and in his hands. Mm-hmm. And my band director was the same in high school too. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's such an important. Part of your, if you want to have a successful program, I I personally feel like you should demonstrate for your students at the highest level possible. Amen. Because most times the students have (laughs) never heard a really great sound on an instrument if they haven't had some. And a great sound is a great sound,
0: even if you're a flute student. Exactly, you can hear somebody
1: exactly. And this is one of the most frustrating things for me in the collegiate music education programs. (laughs) Um, I mean, even at some of the bigger schools, Mm -hmm. I I, I like to ask people why they do what they do, just out of curiosity. And there are, there's this common idea that music education students aren't as good of performers as performance majors are. If I had my way to do with it, I would just demolish performance degrees. This is easy to say from somebody that has three performance degrees. (laughs) But it it's the one degree that we have that doesn't qualify you for any job out there. Right. At least with an education program, you are qualified to teach at the state level. You're qualified to teach at a university level with certifications, of mm-hmm. course. And you learn other basic skills that are built into the program. You learn basic conducting skills. I mean, it's... It's baffling that you can go through a music performance degree never having taken a conducting class or never having taken score study classes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, at the conservatory, you don't most of them don't have core requirements. This should be a core requirement for any musician.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Learn how to be a musician instead of teaching you just how to play your instrument. Mm-hmm. And... Oftentimes, I find uh, performers think, the performance majors thinking that the ed majors are not as good players. And I've also heard music music education students say, well, I'm not good enough to be a performance major. And that just makes me mad. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not good enough to play professionally in some capacity... Why do you think it's a good idea to teach students who are trying to play professionally? Mm-hmm. I mean that doesn't make sense. How do you teach somebody to do something that either you don't know or you don't under, you don't understand or can't do? Well it
0: brings a question of credibility you know I mean, if the students really thought about you know their middle school band director, high school band director not being a great you know like well what are you saying it's okay to be mediocre?
1: You we know? are preaching, medi- mediocrity. and and
0: and that's that's something that uh, at University of Indianapolis where I teach, I don't differentiate between ed majors and performance majors. Everybody has to meet a certain standard.
1: I and I, you I know? wholeheartedly agree that's the way it should be.
0: You know, and you think about that, and you you come out of my program, and I think anybody should, as passionate as you are about what you just stated, I think would I want anybody coming out of my program not being able to play all their major scales or all their scales or I see, you know, I, and, and that might be on the the minimum side of things you know but not knowing significant amount of repertoire and welcome to the middle of the episode just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina covers they offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags mouthpiece pouches and more and their customer service is excellent be sure to check them out at www.masinacovers.net. And now back to the interview.
1: It, and you know and this is this is baffling to me but also, you know, I talk a lot about John Sizemore and where I'm from and those experiences that I had growing up. But it's not just John Sizemore's doing at the middle school level. It was amazing what the band directors were making hmm. us do. We had tests every single week on scales and music that we were playing and stuff that we were doing for solo and ensemble and everything. By the time we all graduated eighth grade, we had to have all 48 minor and major scales memorized. Wow. We had to know them. And and I see major music schools having scale exams in college and that still doesn't make sense to me. It means somewhere along the lines directors or teachers are not doing their job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a I had a student when I first came to Kentucky who was a freshman in in college and could not play a two octave G major scale and came in as a music education student and I just can't I can't wrap my brain around that. Mm-hmm. Because we were forced to do this in 6th grade. Mm-hmm. It's missing at the bottom levels, and I would hope this is not the case across the board. Mm-hmm. But it's it's stat it's really sad the state that that music education is in, and it, it takes a lot of passionate people to make that change.
0: Well, you know, of course, it takes teachers who are focused on that and have intention. To, to make that happen uh, it also takes I think the teachers to uh, help that help the students find the intrinsic motivation to do that you know we're supposed to guide them and but, I mean this at some is, point
1: this is what's being lost you know everywhere across the board you now you see full professors sh- full professorships that are being cut down to an adjunct position that's what happened to me at center college whenever mm-hmm. I started there which was okay. There weren't that many students and you couldn't justify a full-time position. But more than the position itself is what's happening in the upper management side. Uh, Now schools are so interested in how many credits a class generates and they are missing the value of what we do. You have these, these... classes, giant classes now, fifteen hundred or five hundred, fifteen hundred students, let's say, because that does happen sure even here at University of Kentucky. And if it's a three or four credit class, the that one professor, that one hour is generating fifteen hundred, two thousand, you know, three thousand, four thousand credits. It's just baffling that they think that a four credit Lesson one-on-one is not equivalent to that because mm-hmm. it doesn't generate as much money, mm-hmm. and that's what we're looking at—is what's on the page, the, sure. those statistics on the
0: page. Well, and that—that that I think goes along with uh, the, the hiring of—you got to have your doctorate yes. these days, but sometimes even with a doctorate, you're in an adjunct position.
1: And I recently inquired about an adjunct position. One of their first questions was have you finished your doctorate degree <laughs> so if you have your doctorate you have a 2 or 300,000 dollar equivalent degree uh-huh. if you have gone to conservatories uh-huh. and you're being asked to teach a position that may generate $5,000 a semester we really have to stop that
0: Oh, but they're saving so much on benefits, and you oh, know what? Sure I got to be careful are. not to criticize too much because I'm an adjunct at a at a, and I an have done it too, you know. And but I'm not saying anything that has not been said before by hundreds and thousands of other people in my position. So it's not a slam on my particular university. Um, I'd like to keep my job. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm in free control to cut of the as, edit. Much of this as you want to. <laughs> I'll put some music from Disney. You can cut in, all of then, that if uh, you want to. Yeah. I, I no it. I'm I'm not going to cut I mean, I think some of that's valuable and you know uh, I think a lot of people need to be made aware of this although they're living under a rock if they're not aware of the adjunct yeah. situation in a lot of places now
1: so you and I were talking a little bit before the tape started rolling yeah. about doing something different
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is what you have done are currently doing yeah. with this podcast and uh talking about you know, how things have developed with me and other interests and how things have evolved in my musical career and education. Well, um, I've now started doing... Uh, really trying to figure out how, again, how to do my own thing, mm-hmm. what's not being done and being done. And Ed Carroll at the Chosen Vale mm-hmm. Institute in New Hampshire has... That, uh, that program has has really changed my life, as a person, um, as a trumpet player, and just how I think about things. And and it, maybe not not the program itself, but being around so many great trumpet players, great teachers, very influential people, and great students uh, from all over the world who mm-hmm. do radically different things. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Uh, a lot of people that don't know very much about the program assume that it's a very heavily contemporary music-oriented program, and while that may or may may or may not be, um, well, so let me go back here. I put that, that thought that's good. together. That's all right. That's, that's not <laughs> entirely the whole focus of the program. Although there's a lot of people that come there with the interest of playing contemporary music, uh, uh-huh. it's not all about squeaky door music there. You, you get students who are uh-huh. still uh, learning and performing Haydn, Hummel, Artunian, any of the standard concertos, uh-huh. Uh-huh. all the way through things that were just written the day before, which not all contemporary music is that way. <laughs> That's just the way somehow it's been perceived. I, I've talked. I've talked to a couple board members, um, and some orchestras that I have played with in the past, who still consider Mahler, Strauss, Schoenberg, Stravinsky as new music. And that's really surprising when we're talking about a hundred years later, right? Um, but what that program has done for me has helped me figure out how do you push your boundaries beyond what you're doing at that moment. Um, When I was here, fortunately, really fortunately, when I came to Kentucky, uh, Mark Claudefelter's wife, as you know, is Rebecca Wilt, who's one of the best pianists out there. Oh, yeah, she's terrific. And she's sort of adopted the idea of being the trumpet player's pianist. (laughs) There's not much repertoire out there she hasn't played at Mm -hmm. some point or another. And has 99% of it memorized at a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. But she's also one of my favorite people to work with. Mm -hmm. But while I was here at Kentucky, uh, I started working on uh, Ligeti, Mysteries of the Macabre. Mm -hmm. And that piece really changed the way that I practice. It changed the way that I think beyond just orchestral auditions or learning the standard uh, trumpet concertos because... That was not a piece that I could just pick up and play. I could pick up Tomasi and Jolivet, and kind of hash my way through it, and could mm-hmm. play ninety-nine percent of it. Maybe not well, but I could, you mm-hmm. know, get mm-hmm. my way through it. But that wasn't the case with that leggity piece. So, mm-hmm. I, I took it upon myself to rewrite the whole piece within one octave. And that's when I realized where the melody lines actually go in that particular piece, and I started hearing the piece. Mm-hmm. But when they are uh, dispersed over an octave, two octaves mm-hmm. or greater, mm-hmm. it's easy to miss that. That really helped me learn the piece. Mm-hmm. And when I could hear where it's moving within an octave, then the leaps were no longer a problem, mm-hmm. just a navigation to the next note. Mm-hmm and then things really started to come together, but I got to learn that piece with Rebecca here in Mm -hmm. Kentucky. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time working on that together. And that was the first time that I had worked with her on a piece that she was learning. We had a really great time together and she, you know, she's amazing, but she had to play a whistle in there. She brought in (laughs) bongos and it's written for Mm -hmm. percussion Mm -hmm. parts. Um, and when we took that to NTC, I was a little bit worried about the percussive parts that it might be against the rules there. Uh, because as far as I know, I don't think anything like that had been done mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems to be that if the pianist is playing it, mm-hmm. then, then it works. It's all good. Uh, but I took that, after NTC, I took it to Chosenville. Well, how did NTC
0: summer. go? How was that performance?
1: I did win. Uh um, congratulations. The first place. I was not expecting to. There the, the other two guys that were in the finals there were just incredible. I actually thought Alex Wilson was there, who's become a really close friend of mine mm-hmm. now. Um, he played uh the Huna Slavonic Fantasy and just nailed the crap out of it. And I was I was standing backstage listening to it and I was like, I'm i I'm so happy for him because he mm-hmm. totally just blew this out of the park. Mm-hmm. He won it. Mm-hmm. I was just happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I had gone the year before and played Tomasi, and I didn't make it to the, the finals, but I heard the guys that were in the finals. And I could kind of see and tell maybe what I needed to do to try to get to the stage. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that I uh, – oh, sorry, I skipped a year. I played Tomasi the first time and then figured that out. And then I took Jolovey Concertino the next year, Um, but my goal was to win that year. I -hmm. managed to get in the finals, and I was really happy, but I didn't win. Mm -hmm. I got second place, which I was really happy with, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't the goal that I was trying to reach the whole year. And I didn't necessarily feel let down, but I didn't fulfill that goal. Mm -hmm. So I actually put a blast out on Facebook. you know, What are some of the craziest pieces that you know for trumpet and piano? And I believe it was Brian Shaw that suggested the Ligeti piece. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before. And so I got it and stuck it in my filing cabinet because mm-hmm. there was no way I was going to be able to play that. <laughs> and that was very true at that time. Mm-hmm. But um, it, when I went that year with Ligeti, I really didn't care. I'd made it to the final podium, and I was really happy with that. Again, yeah, I was Mm -hmm. very happy with that, but I didn't care what place it got. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in my life that I ever really, truly believed that. Uh, And maybe that's why the performance went better, because that wasn't getting in my way. Mm -hmm. Maybe my attempt at winning the second year with the Jolive, maybe that totally just botched that performance yeah
0: okay so let's, let's stop and talk about the competitive aspect of this for a second i mean if everybody's playing the same piece yes then it's apples to apples it is it's such a subjective thing i mean objective sure if you miss notes or miss rhythms or that, but it's such a subjective thing otherwise to score people when they're playing separate pieces mm-hmm. how can you go in with I'm going to win. I'm going to win. If it's not apples to apples, because you you realize it's, I mean you could you could all put on the absolute best performance of your career to that point. I mean, and it's just up to somebody going, eh, I like that one better. Or you know, I mean, it's it's you get where I'm coming from Mm -hmm. on this. It's not. it, It. It's not America's got talent, that's for sure, you know. I mean Yeah, no, but how
1: do I mean how do you answer that question even really? Well, I
0: don't know. Maybe it, let's say because it's there there is was no, a rhetorical question.
1: It, maybe it is. Or just just to think about that. No matter of what it. you're playing, it still has to be in time, in tune yeah. with the good sound. Well, and
0: I guess maybe the reason I asked that question is So, there's no real reason to to think about I'm going to win, I'm going to win. The focus you had was I'm going to go in and I want to play my best, right? Oh, I
1: just wanted to do something different. Okay, but you which was the just very it. beginning of this conversation.
0: But but you're you're uh, you're obviously I don't know if you're a perfectionist, but you went in with an, obviously an intent to play extremely well. It's a better focus than win, win, win. I well, think.
1: certainly. I mean, because my focus that whole year was not to win it was just play well.
0: Mm-hmm. And how different was that
1: that piece? Had anything been done like that before? As far as I know, no. But funny, that y- that same year Jens Lindemann had a student that I don't remember who the student was because I didn't see his prelim performance also had a student bring the same piece.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I'm I'm no doubt, if you bring a piece like that to the competition, it's going to be a very serious player. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the performance went well. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, however, do a little bit of choreography with with that with the Ligety. Um, Not a whole lot. I threw a mute, which most people is how they know <laughs> that performance or the video on YouTube from mm-hmm. throwing the mute, and that was. I think that may have been Rebecca's decision, but somehow it came to be. It's not in the piece, and now that we look back on it, maybe it shouldn't be Mm -hmm, part of the mm -hmm. performance. But at the same time, that extraction, Mysteries of the Macabre, is uh, an extraction of three separate arias from Ligeti's opera, The Grand Macabre. Mm -hmm. So you are an operatic character. So we were working on making a character, not just playing some other trumpet piece mm-hmm. that was the whole goal for the whole thing is just just be a musician be an entertainer be a theater performer think back
0: beginning of our conversation and listening to 17 plus hours of Wagner, <laughs> you, you became that operatic character
1: and I, you know, I it mean was, that it was strange because every performance that I gave of that ligeti, something always went wrong. It was, and I don't mean how I played the trumpet because, you know, obviously when you play a more difficult piece like that, you take a lot more risks in every performance that you give. But always something that something happened that shouldn't have. In my first performance of that piece was, on a brass area recital at University of Kentucky. Uh, The E-flat trumpet, I played it on E-flat trumpet, which I've had conversations with both uh, Brian McWhorter, who was the first person I encountered with that piece on YouTube. Just amazing uh, video and amazing performance. But also with Hokan Hardenberger, both of them are radically different on uh hokan Hulk, especially is an an extreme purist um mm-hmm. uh, if the part says trumpet in c and particularly with modern pieces then you play it trumpet in c well at the time i didn't feel like i had the physicality to play it mm-hmm. in c um but that summer mm-hmm. when i went to Chosenville, we had a he was there mm-hmm. and we had quite a long conversation about that piece and how it came to be a trumpet piece cuz originally written for voice. Mm. And uh, I I got torn a little apart a little bit for playing it on E flat trumpet and I totally understand where he's coming from cuz it is a very different timbre. Um, and maybe the C trumpet with more has more resonance, maybe that is more closely related to the voice.
0: I just realized I know this piece. There's a soprano that sings this piece Barbara it's with Hannigan. a small Uh, chamber orchestra and there are effects you see the effects in the percussion you know winding up newspaper and and all this uh, sort of shtick that goes with it that so that's the original for voice that's the original oh my gosh
1: if anyone out there has not seen Barbara Haneken's performances which is spectacular of Mysteries of the Macabre yeah it is worth the experience. So every performance trumpet? she does oh. is entirely different. She is a different character in every performance. She directs some of the performances, mm-hmm. not all of them, but they're all so uniquely great and so different from one to the next. It's amazing to see how one performer can have so many ideas with the same piece from performance mm-hmm. to performance and they all are great, uh-huh. for many different reasons. Uh-huh. It's, and, and a performer at that level, it's incredible to see them growing with the piece continually.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And when you see people that are that invested in contemporary music, especially like that, you really start to appreciate what they're doing what we were talking about, when you hear a, a great performer play something, it sounds like a great piece. You get so excited. You're going to go buy this piece. Mm-hmm. And I've been in performances where I've thought, oh, I've got to get this. This is really great. Then I go get it, and I find out, actually, the piece is kind of garbage. <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. But that performance really made me enjoy yeah. the music. So I think a, you know, a lot of people's experience Exposures, first exposures to some of the more avant-garde repertoire may be the reason why they think they don't like something. But because of um, when I took that to Chosen, that, that P- Ligeti to Chosenvale, this was summer of 2012.
0: Is this right after NTC?
1: This was right after, just a few months okay. after NTC. I didn't really know the piece at NTC, I didn't really know it when I went to Even Chosen with vale. all the
0: work you had put in prior to that?
1: You know, I, I wished I'd had another year on it. Mm. Uh, I would have felt a lot more secure. I, I think the performance was about as good as I could do at the time. And again, that's another piece that grows with me as I get older, as I mature more as a player. Mm-hmm. I have a lot more things to give to it, and every performance is radically different because mm-hmm. – I figure out more ways that I can now make it easier, mm-hmm. make it more fun, uh, without the crazy effect. So, okay.
0: <laughs> so you think about this. This you call it avant-garde music, uh, and you know we'll say Brandenburg Two was avant-garde at some point. Heide sure. was avant-garde at some point. Uh, maybe not in the same way that we define it currently, but uh, there's an expectation for the way you're going to perform Brandenburg. There's an expectation that. You know, you're not going to go crazy with the Haydn. You know, cadenzas might be, or ornamentation might be different.
1: Well, we have that beautiful avant-garde cadenza by Karl Heinz Stockhausen yeah, for the so, Haydn.
0: Right, so, you know, it, but that's just the cadenza. I mean, what if you went crazy with the interpretation on the tune itself? You know,
1: and... I think you'd probably take more flack from string players than you would well, trumpet players. Yeah, but
0: my my thought is, you know, you're talking about taking the Ligeti and performing so many different ways in that. And it's like, what would happen if you took the Haydn or the Hummel, Artunian, and tried to put a different angle, a different slant on that, a different voice on that? You know, I mean, you're going to, first of all, you know you're going to get backlash from the trumpet community. Sure. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try that stuff. Or maybe, you know, I, I'm, I mean, who I'm are digging we to judge, a little bit. Really, but
1: until, uh, you know, how were those pieces played in 1796 or 1803? I mean, we're
0: not performing on keyed bugle. No, we're so playing it's, on B flat, or wrong, E flat, right? Right? <laughs> right. So we're already making a, a, a choice to do something slightly different, right? But mm-hmm. you know, how far? How far do we go? You know, you'd play a bucket mute on a flugelhorn to play the second movement of the Haydn. You know, I mean, it could be just I'm being maybe ridiculous a little bit, but
1: why not? You never know, really. Until and, and this is what's going to cost me my job.
0: They're going to think this guy's nuts and, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but Again, I'm just you I'm intrigued by... If have the right by...
1: performer that can convince right. people that something is great, who knows? Yeah. I don't think... We can say what is right or wrong. (laughs) Only what we think is good or bad.
0: Mm -hmm. And good music is good everybody has
1: a different meaning, a different relationship with sound. Mm -hmm. So there is no right or wrong answer. Mm -hmm. So what are you working on these days, solo-wise? Well, actually, currently, um, tomorrow I catch a flight uh, tomorrow morning to Sydney, Australia. Mm -hmm. I... I'm doing a recording of Brendan Collins' new E-flat coronet concerto for Brass Band. Uh, We are recording with Pacific Brass in Sydney under direction of Ben Crocker. The band is fantastic. I'm Mm -hmm. really looking forward to this experience. But uh, that recording is going to be done through the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And as far as we know, this is the first uh, recording that ABC has ever sponsored for a, an Australian band to record Australian music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brendan is from uh, Newcastle, mm-hmm. uh, originally just north of of Sydney, and just uh, this earlier this year in January, I released my first solo CD, which was all of Brendan Collins' uh, music, current music for trumpet. Mm-hmm. And out of that process began this work for uh, Mm E-flat cornet. Before you go
0: any further, self-produced or what label? Uh, How how can people get a hold of this if they (laughs) want it?
1: It was recorded or it is available through uh, Parma Recordings. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, the the label is Nirvana Records. They're an imprint label, Mm -hmm. uh, imprint record label under Parma uh, Umbrella but it's available on itunes amazon mm-hmm. spotify what's the
0: title of the cd
1: it's called great southern land mm-hmm. uh subtitled australian music for trumpet by brendan collins cool and it's with it features me and my pianist maria fuller uh there's also three tracks on there that feature an additional solo voice one for two trumpets uh, double concerto uh with my good good buddy Andy Lott. and what a hack! <laughs> you know Andy very yeah, well up I in <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> um, and in fact, it was Andy that introduced us. I, I think. They, oh yeah, in, back in San, San An- An- Antonio, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there's a, a piece for trumpet, violin, and piano, uh, with uh, my great friend and former concert master Gabriel Lefkowitz who is now Concert Master in Louisville Orchestra. So I still get to see him every oh, now that's and cool. then I want to play yeah. the orchestra. And yeah. uh, the other track is with trumpet, trombone, and piano uh, recorded with my friend Tyler Sims, who I got to know really well here at University of Kentucky.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, this is kind of cool. You know, I, I really thought of you uh, as an orchestral player, which you are, mm-hmm. but no,
1: you're a, you're a trumpet player. And And you've got. This is the way you're talking about things, you know, priorities and how they change over time. This is something that sort of evolved whenever I moved to Kentucky. You know, I spent so much of my training with Jim Thompson and Mm -hmm. Vince Pensarella. And um, in the summers and just before uh, I entered college, I was studying with Larry Black quite a lot down in Mm -hmm. Atlanta, too. And so I spent almost all of my training with. Mm -hmm with very good, very strong orchestral, orchestral trumpet players. But I've always felt like I needed to do something in addition to mm-hmm. playing in the orchestra. I love my orchestral job. I'm very thankful that I even have it. Mm-hmm. But I also like having my own projects too. And, and the, what we consider an orchest- orchestral player, that definition has changed greatly Oh yeah, recently even. And and happening more and more.
0: Are you talking about the like the having to wear the pops hat? <laughs> no, so much or
1: yes, but you know what is pops now compared to what it used to be? Mm-hmm. You know, used to the orchestra was just reading big band tunes, mm-hmm. and it was very common that even orchestral players had some sort of training in in jazz. They often played in big bands as well. Mm-hmm. That's less so the case, and now orchestras don't want to hire. Extra people to come in and play the pops charts. So, if I don't, if I decide not to play a pops tune, well, I don't get a paycheck, and that's the that's the nature of the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I see that I just saw a, a, a ridiculous post on Facebook earlier today. I'm sorry, I'll pull it down off there. Oh no, wait, it wasn't mine. No, <laughs> where somebody's asking, um, do you have a good Double C. All right, well, that's not entirely necessary (laughs) for playing the trumpet. And yes, for most jobs, you'll never see them. But I have seen them in the orchestra. Uh And if it's there, I'm going to try to play it. I'm going to play it to the best of my ability. I'm I'm smart about this, too. I know when I can't do something. And I know when there are guys around town that I really... Should call to play mm-hmm. some of the really a, a true big Rank. band Rank. lead trumpet gig. You know, I've always been one that's had may, maybe a a more natural ability of playing higher on the trumpet, mm-hmm. but I would never call myself a, a lead trumpet player mm-hmm. because yes, you can play high. But do you play the right styles? Can mm-hmm. you really, like it's called, lead Grand. trumpet? Can you really lead the band? Mm-hmm. That's not a position that I really see myself in. I uh, interviewed Roger Ingram last yes. week, <clears throat> and uh, Roger and I
0: have become friends, and uh, it was a great hang afterwards. I mean, you know, an hour interview and then two hours uh, blowing smoke.
1: <laughs> Roger is. <laughs> well, not literally, fantastic. mind you, but. Uh,
0: but, you know, he was talking, and I don't remember. Uh, I'll have to go back to the podcast and, and catch who. He attributed this to, but he says, uh, somebody asked him once, he said, hey, Roger, see all those notes above high C? Yeah, that's the upper register. See all those notes below low low C? That's the low register. The notes between low C and high C? That's the cash register. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, it's a simple way to think. We do. We make most of our money, you know, in that two octave range, you know, give or take a little bit. And it's you know you think man all of a sudden these charts come along like you're talking about the temptations come through town, yes. Uh oh. <laughs> and pi- and playing piccolo trumpet doesn't cut it. It's not you know and I've seen I've right seen sound. players pick right and but players pick up those horns and and try to cut it and it you know it doesn't work.
1: But herein lies the the difference in the job right. Most orchestral players that get the pop tunes most people use a C trumpet to play most of those gigs. I am not that way. Mm-hmm. If it's a true B-flat part, I'm going to play mm-hmm. B-flat trumpet.
0: Well, that's nice to hear. It's
1: a different sound. It's mm-hmm. a different character. It's a different feel. And you have, to me, B-flat trumpet has a lot more colors in the sound. It produces mm-hmm. a thicker set of overtones it, than a C-trumpet It's trumpet nice does. to hear
0: you hear you say that. We did a, an all-John Williams concert uh, not long ago one of the orchestras I play with. So I told the guys, on all the charts that are B-flat, we're going to play B-flat. All the charts that are C-trumpet, we're going to play C. Otherwise, why did John Williams or his orchestrator put it for that keyed instrument? You know, I think, man, B-flat trumpet, oh, it's right in the overtone series also of the trombones. And if you've got an orchestra where the guy's playing B-flat tuba, or gal is playing B-flat tuba, man, it lines up beautifully and the horns line up great. You know, now, C-trumpet? still going to line up with the horns and a C tuba, but you miss that that blend with the trombones. But it has a sound, you know, you think okay, but it's only a whole step.
1: Yeah, but there's a sound, right? We have all of these instruments. How many god, how many different types of trumpets there are there? All of these
0: I don't know, we got plenty color of time. Palettes, Let's talk about it.
1: And yet we keep wanting to paint with just black and white. So I I you try to use more appropriate mm-hmm. instruments when mm-hmm. it's possible, and
0: oh, it's nice to sometimes hear you say it's that.
1: harder than it would be mm-hmm. otherwise. But if it's not the right sound, well, it's not the right sound. Mm-hmm. But also, a lot of those charts are way more difficult to play on C trumpet physically. Mm-hmm. You don't have to work. I feel I don't have to work as hard on a B flat trumpet than I do on a C trumpet. Mm-hmm why you're making really making your job harder and don't realize it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's not always the case of course but on a lot of those tunes you're doing a whole lot of stuff that's in e major on c trumpet or f sharp major on b flat trumpet (laughs) in a majority of these pops tunes and you know that probably weren't originally written for the orchestra And it's just mainly so the strings can play an E major. It's Mm -hmm. a great key for strings. Sure. Let's make their jobs easier. That way we can (laughs) just live with it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So let's just get comfortable playing an F-sharp major. Why not? (laughs) Isn't
0: that what we were supposed to do when we were learning our scales and all that sort of thing? Sure. Learning our transpositions. It is one of them, them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... um, You've been subbing in Knoxville. Or sorry, you've been subbing in Louisville. Yes. Um, Terry Abrams is the music director. Is that Teddy right? Abrams Teddy is Abrams there. Sorry. Yes. And and is there. And how's that going? As
1: far as I understand, I believe that Teddy is the youngest um, current conductor in a full-time exam orchestra. Mm-hmm. I do you believe so? Mm-hmm. Teddy's really great. I, I've really enjoyed my experience working with him. Mm-hmm. He, his uh, his musical knowledge and his training, I I believe I believe that he is a student of Michael Tilson Thomas Mm -hmm. and uh, Tilson Thomas took him as a very young student too and kind of nurtured him in his entire development as a conductor Um, Teddy is, he is one of the most clear conductors to follow, you know exactly Mm -hmm. where his beats are going to be but beyond You know, what he's doing with his hands, the way he describes the music, the way he knows exactly what sounds he wants to hear. I mean, that's what you want from Mm -hmm, a conductor. mm -hmm. I mean, the guy's the real deal, Mm -hmm. who just happens to be really young. I'd be really interested to see where he goes from here, if he stays in Louisville, if he goes somewhere else. Um, If he has the desire to go somewhere else, Mm -hmm. I'm sure he probably will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it only has a lot of room to grow
0: they recently had a audition for principal trumpet yes they did and uh, failed is that right is that how they classified it or as a failed search failed audition or no they
1: did end up hiring somebody for that I didn't realize that They well there were two auditions there was one audition back in September and they did not hire anybody for that, uh, that was,
0: was that second or third that was for principal Oh, that was. Principal. And then
1: they had another principal audition in April. Mm-hmm. That audition did not go my way. <laughs> you know, you have, you have these days where mm-hmm. it's just. No matter what you do, it's not your day. Right. I haven't experienced that many times. But the the sound, for me in that audition, the sound was there. Mm-hmm. I was really happy. With the feedback that I was getting from mm-hmm. the room, just missed half the notes. Is it
0: okay to talk about this on on here?
1: I I don't care. I can edit
0: it. Out. I mean, we, did you we, advance?
1: We all know that I did not advance. Didn't advance. Uh, did Even you,
0: having yeah. subbed there, they didn't uh, auto advance you to semis or.
1: Every orchestra's in, every orchestra and ensemble has its own set of politics and and rules and how they do things but that orchestra does not advance people who are not full-time tenured mm-hmm. members of the orchestra. Gotcha. So I, I I did ask and was denied that request. Mm-hmm. Never hurts to ask. Sure. Um, but man, I was really prepared for that audition better than I think I have ever been for any audition. Mm-hmm. And 90% of the repertoire that was on the audition, I played through the season. Mm-hmm. So I yes I knew how Teddy wanted to do things. Right, I felt very confident walking in.
0: So what's what's it look like on the audition scene coming up? Are you are you looking at anything in particular? or?
1: Well, my wife just got offered a new um, faculty position here at UK mm-hmm. as a PI, a private investigator, in which she has her own lab and will get her own students. Uh, it's a, one of the best. It is the best job offer that she's been offered anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it looks like we're going to be settling in Kentucky mm-hmm. for at least another seven years or so, at least mm-hmm. through the whole tenure process, maybe mm-hmm. longer. Mm-hmm. Um, we've liked our life here. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes my job hard, being that I don't have a, a full time playing position in Lexington, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of surrounding regional sure. orchestras that are really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Within a three hour radius, there's mm-hmm. five or six really outstanding mm-hmm. uh, uh, regional orchestras. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to be able to work and play in sure. the same city, but at the same time, I also have more flexibility to do, like I said, projects that I wanna do. One of those was the CD. One of this is them is this upcoming recording in Australia. Uh, I'll also be adjudicating for a band competition while I'm Mm -hmm. there and doing solo recitals and master classes at various schools. That gives me more opportunities Mm -hmm. to do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't imagine that
0: uh, things aren't going to go well. I mean, you know, I I sit here and I listen to you and I I see and hear... uh, the, the passion that you have for
1: this, and uh, the, the I don't, I don't think any of my students that I've ever had will tell you I'm not passionate about it. I talk the ears off. I'm really good at that. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> it, but you know, I think um, I, I just can't imagine that things aren't going to go your way, and whatever that way is going to be. Well, maybe they already have. About, but you're, and you're talking about uh, doing something different to to help define who you are. Uh, maybe not define who you are. Um, to give you a niche sure. to make you just different enough um, you know I think uh, we've talked about you know Jason and what he's doing with mm-hmm. the Baroque uh, program
1: and uh, I was a part of that program here as well mm-hmm. um, and I every now and then I still come back as an alumnus of the school and mm-hmm. play with their Broke trumpet ensemble okay. and out of the UK Baroque Trumpet Ensemble grew an idea for Jason, which I'm sure he'll talk about mm-hmm. with you as well. Um, we started a new uh, Baroque Trumpet and kettle drum Ensemble last summer and did our first recording.
0: Is that, that the one with John Foster?
1: It is with John Foster, uh, who is one of my favorite people so that I've met.
0: So John and Vinny came to UND and did their Sound the Trumpet yes. program, which was spectacular. Had them over to my house for dinner mm-hmm. and... Got to know John. Of course, Vinny was my first teacher, so I've known Venny for for ages. In fact, here at UK. I remember his studio used to be across the street and up up those steps. Uh, So I did a little tour of the building before when I got here today just to kind of bring back some memories.
1: Probably hasn't changed much.
0: Uh, uh, No, it's still the same old crappy crappy building. Uh, But John... uh, what an amazing musician and what a super nice guy! Absolutely. But you know, he gave me a couple of CDs, and of course, I threw him I, my car still has a CD player. It tells you how old my car is, and uh, listen to those. And one of those was with the uh, UK uh, Baroque Ensemble mm-hmm. and with with the drums on there. Um, man, fantastic stuff! Just really great. So, congrats on that recording. That Very was good. that was really good. Uh, but John um, I interviewed him as well, and you know, I'd love to get over his to his. Uh, Australasian, trumpet academy mm-hmm. uh, at some point uh, won't happen this year. But um, you know, and there, see, he's doing something unique and different. It's not just playing and not just teaching, but he's he's doing something that sets himself apart. And uh, uh, yeah, so man, we could go forever. This is what I tell everybody. It's like seriously, <laughs> we could sit here and chat forever. Um, but if we cut it off here, uh, it just means that we get together at another point and pick it up and talk about more stuff sure and we didn't do it today we didn't talk equipment and we're not going to start
1: i okay. am a yamaha artist oh man I play <laughs> almost exclude i'm just kidding no but i am a yamaha artist but that's a yep no
0: that's great that you should absolutely put that shameless plug in there for that
1: that company you just did you can edit that out <laughs> We no. didn't talk about equipment, but yes, I am a Yamaha artist. Yeah, and I play Toshi mouthpieces. Never heard of it. Mostly because they have a cool-looking turtle on them. That's about it. That's about it. <laughs> that's all right. So, hey, uh, thank
0: you so much for sharing everything you did today. I really appreciate. Oh, it. I I I love. I've enjoyed candid
1: this. conversations yeah. too. Yeah.
0: Well, and and you know it, it, that's that's the cool thing is. Uh, Sometimes you make yourself a little bit vulnerable by sharing certain things, and well, I think that's I'm what, not
1: afraid of that. Yeah, but, but that's who you man, are. that's
0: exactly, and that's I think what people would appreciate. That's what I appreciate is you know you're giving me a, a real view into the life of doctor. I wish Chase I could. I wish
1: know. I could explain some of the things that I was sort of getting at, and then getting distracted from. Yeah. Well.
0: But, you know but again, we're gonna, we'll are gonna we we'll get a chance to come back to that because sure. uh, um, maybe I'll have you come up to Indy at some point and do a master class up there. Oh, I would love to do that. I, th- I think that'd be great. Kids would love it. Would love so, to do that. Man, all right. We're going to f- uh, finish it right there. Thanks again. And uh, thanks for being part of Studio HFL.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here. And please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues, and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at wwwpatreoncom HFL. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great
1: interviews.